Let's go ahead and read our text for the week. Like I said, the narrative now is about to begin. The narrative proper. And we encounter this figure who you'll see in your Bible is referred to as John the Baptist. Now, I like to call him John the Baptizer. The reason he got the nickname the Baptist is because he was baptizing people in the river. He's not a Baptist in the way that uh, you know, the denomination of churches, he's not like, that's not why they're the, Bapt- the Baptists. Uh, he was just a person who was baptizing people in the wilderness, and he came before Jesus. So let's read this, and I'll tell you a little bit more about who John is. Ready? Verse 19. This was John's testimony. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah, John said. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? John said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked, they asked John, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? John replied, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. I would actually add, you do not know him, is what the Greek says. You do not know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany, across the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. So, that'll be our text today. And tomorrow we'll fin- or next week we'll finish this story about what happens next. We're not done with John the Baptist. Something amazing happens next week. And so uh, what I've titled this sermon is How to Prepare for a Revelation of Jesus. How do we prepare ourselves to experience, to witness a revelation of Jesus? John's going to give us some input. He's going to show us the way. Um, so who is this John? Some of you might know about him, but some of you might not. So I want to I give you more detail than John, the author of the Gospel of John, gives you. Now, if you haven't been here, John, the author of the Gospel, is not the same as John the Baptist or the baptizer. Those are two different characters. Now, one of the reasons that I think that the Bible is true is because you see this happen all the time. All the main characters have the same name. And if you're just going to make up a story, you wouldn't have John the Gospel writer writing about John the Baptist. It's very confusing. Unless you have more information. And what John, the author writer, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and part of Jesus' cadre, his inner circle, what John is doing is actually adding to what would have been common knowledge amongst the churches that he's sending his gospel to. So there were already written three other uh, biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
They give more detail about who John was and John, uh, John the Baptist was, and John the gospel writer is assuming that people have heard these stories about John. So he's, not, he's just going to jump right in and, and start using this name John and just assume you know who he's talking about. And we've said that before. One of the things John's doing is he's, he's helping us understand exactly who John was and exactly what John the baptizer was doing. Because in the decades since the other Gospels had written and the Jesus movement had begun, uh, John is now coming back to clarify and expand and fill out a picture of Jesus and his ministry, his death and his resurrection. So uh, that's what John is doing here. Now, John tells us about, John the Gospel writer tells us about this part of John the Baptist ministry that we didn't know about before. That when John was baptizing people across the Jordan, so on the east side of the Jordan River, kind of out in the wilderness, and you got to understand if you don't know, John, John was he's kind of an interesting dude. He wore camel's hair uh, clothing and he ate a uh, very vegan diet of honey and who knows what else, locusts, things like that. So he's a sort of strange dude. But people were flocking to him. Hundreds of people were going out to him to be baptized in the water, to be immersed in the water for baptism of repentance, John will say, of cleansing. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, the other thing you need to know about John is that he was related to Jesus. He was about, we get this from Luke's gospel, he was about six months older than his younger cousin Jesus. Now, cousin back then meant what cousin means, and I get this from Tylene, in the Filipino community. We're not sure <laughs> exactly how they're related, but in some way they're related. So we don't know if John's mother, Elizabeth, was like an aunt or an uncle, we don't, or if she was, uh, we don't know. So when we say cousin, we're saying like maybe second, third, fourth cousin, something like that. But they were related, and, and Luke tells a story about how Mary, Jesus' mother, went to John's mother and John the Baptist literally leapt in the womb of his mother when he experienced the presence of the pregnant Mary coming and Jesus. And, and so you can read all about that in Luke. We won't get into that, but you need to know there's more information about John. What John, the gospel writer, wants us to know is this very important encounter that happened before John the baptizer even knew who Jesus was. Okay? So when we read this, it's important to understand, John the baptizer doesn't yet know that Jesus is who we'll find out he is. It hasn't yet been revealed to John. So John has been given a task, as we'll see, he'll say, to prepare the way of the one coming after him. But even John hasn't had it revealed to him yet. We get to talk about John having that revelation next week. Right now, we just have John preparing for this revelation, okay? It's very exciting. Now, who are you, John is asked. Now, the people that are asking him are sort of high-level officials. And back in the day, the, the religious officials and the political officials, they're kind of one and the same in the Jewish community. And so some... Priests and Levites were sent out to him, probably because anybody claiming to be doing God's work but not sanctioned by the temple and the officials there, what's going on? 
He's saying he's doing a baptism of repentance. Well, that wasn't uncommon to religious systems of the day or even in Judaism, this idea of, uh, of doing ritual cleansing. But why is this guy doing it? The honey guy, the camel guy, camel hairs guy. What's going on here? So they send some people out to, to actually ask him, who are you? It seems like you've got some juice, basically, because a lot of people are coming to you. And so they honestly want to know, who do you claim to be? Who are you? Now, I want you to, to notice something. Knowing who you are often begins with knowing who you are not. Knowing who you are often begins with knowing who you are not. And what's John do? He says again and again, I am not this. We have to go back into the prologue to see the first thing. And then we'll, I'll, let me say them all, and then I'll come back and talk about each of them. If we go back to the prologue in verse 8, John, if you remember, says, I am not the light. We'll look at that in a second. Then he goes on to say, I am not the Messiah. Then he goes on to say, I am not Elijah. Then he goes on to say, I am not the prophet. Then he goes on to say, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of the one coming. And later, if we looked into verse 31 and 33, which we won't be talking about, John will very clearly say, I did not know, I did not recognize him when he first came. He says it twice. I did not know him. And so you see all these knots. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, not that. What am I? And then John gives them the what I am. And that's in verse 23. He says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So talk about that. First, he's got to sort of help them understand what he's not. And he's got to under, help himself understand what he's not so that he can understand who he is. That's true of us as well. One of the best exercises to do is to recount what you are not. What you are not. And what you can never be. You won't know who you are until you know who you're not. John gives us a great example of that. So, let me take a look, one by one, at the not statements of John. Ah, oh, that's kind of a downer. Why do you got to be so negative? Talking about all the things that John is not. Listen, John's doing just fine. We're talking about him 2,000 years later. What did he accomplish in his life? He dunked a few hundred people in a river. Taught a few things. Then he got his head chopped off. And we're talking about him 2,000 years later. Wow. Why? Why? Because John, although he wasn't all these other things, although he didn't have a long, illustrious career, although he never wrote any books, although he died very young, he did the one task God gave him to the best of his ability and without fear. And for that, it's Jesus who calls John the greatest person ever born to a woman. Whoa! Quite a compliment, depending on who you believe Jesus to be. So John 
is not a lot of things, but he's so much because he gave his life to the work God gave him. So what is he not? First, in, let's read uh, back up in the prologue, verses 6 to 8. It says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I'm talking about John the baptizer here. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You can go back and and look at it more deeply, but uh, this is so important. John the baptizer makes it into the prologue about the cosmic Jesus. This is amazing. And he came to testify about the light, but he was not the light. Later we'll hear John talked about as he's like a lamp who gives light, but what is a lamp? It only is a reflection of the true source of the light. So John you could think of as this great mirror that reflects the light of Christ. But he's not the light. He just does his job to reflect the light that was coming into the world. So he's not the light. Then we move forward and we see them ask, are you the Messiah? Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed. Underline confessed. He confessed. Strange word there, because again and again we see John, the author, say he said, but he starts by saying he confessed, meaning he he left nothing out. There was no shame left in that he wasn't anything more than what he was. He confessed it. He was totally open about who he was. I am not the Messiah. So who is the Messiah? Now, Messiah... Um, if you were reading in another translation, it'd actually say the Christ. And the reason that the translators of this particular translation use Messiah is because clearly the, the Pharisees are asking about the Old Testament predicted Messiah. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, uh, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's an identifier of who he is. So Jesus, the Messiah. And so everyone in that day was excited about the Messiah. In fact, people other than Jesus, were coming and claiming to be the Messiah. They all proved to, to not be the Messiah, but there was this great hope amongst Israel that the Messiah would come. And what, what was the Messiah all about? What was the prediction? I'll read you one of them from 2 Samuel. We'll throw it up on the screen here. You don't have to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a prediction made by the prophet Nathaniel, or, or Nathan to King David, who was the greatest king of Israel, and this is what the prophecy was. Ever since the day I ordered judges, this is God talking, ever since I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, David, when you die and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant. Notice the singular, your descendant, who will come from your body, meaning he'll be in your family line, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod, 
of, of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul. That was the king before David, King Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So here's a prediction from God to David of this coming Messiah. And Messiah in the Hebrew means anointed one. So the king in the Old Testament would be anointed with oil to symbolize that God is with him as the king. So that's what Messiah means, the anointed one, translated into the Greek, the Christ. And so they asked John, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? The one in David's line who will reestablish God's kingdom and bring us rest and peace. Are you him? And John says, I am not him. Okay, they say. Well, what about Elijah? Are you Elijah returned? Now, Why would they ask that? If you know Old Testament, Elijah is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Crazy cat. Prophesied for God. And if you read the Old Testament, you read about him. Elijah, uh, amongst other things, was was sort of known as the herald of the end of the world. So you could see why they might have thought, well, John's sort of apocalyptic in his dress, Like Elijah, he spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and he's talking about the coming of some new thing and getting ready for it. And the people expected Elijah to return because Elijah is one of the only people in the Old Testament who did not experience death, but it says was taken up into heaven without seeing death. And so there was this expectation and this thought that Elijah would return in physical form to help the people of Israel. So let me show you where that comes from. Another prophet, Malachi, said this. This is Malachi 4.5. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah. So this is hundreds of years earlier. I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So there was this prediction that Elijah would come. And so people assumed Elijah would come back and do some things kind of like John was doing. So they were expecting that. Such an, interesting, such an interesting thing happening here. Now, unless you think it's unnecessary to explain, no, I'm not Elijah, Jesus didn't make anything easier. And again, part of the reason John is writing his gospel, is to clarify who is who and what is what. And, and, and in the other gospels, people were learning that Jesus said these things about John the Baptist. <laughs> okay, so look at Luke one seventeen. says this. Jesus is talking. He says, And he will go before him in the, in, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient Uh, to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready the Lord a prepared people. This is the way Luke leads into his narrative about John the Baptist, okay? And then in Matthew 11, 14, Jesus says this, And if you're willing to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, 
is the Elijah who is to come. Okay, so imagine if you only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you read this in Matthew. Jesus said this about John. And then you had Luke describing or preparing to explain who John was. You might rightfully think, as people in the church, that maybe John was Elijah come back in the flesh. And so John wants to explain, no, he's not Elijah. Part of why John puts this narrative that we don't have in anywhere else. Uh, he's not Elijah, but he does come in the spirit of Elijah. And that must have been confusing for people. So John the baptizer does do all, a lot of the things that Elijah did. That's why people thought maybe he was more than just an ordinary prophet. And so John makes it explicitly clear that no, this is not the physical return of Elijah, but it is a type of fulfillment of the prophecy that one like Elijah will come. And that's what Jesus was talking about, and that's what Luke was talking about, though it could be confusing. John helps clarify. And so that's why we're thankful we have the fourth gospel. So John makes it very clear that he is not Elijah. Okay, so then they ask him, are you the prophet? He says, no. Well, who is the prophet? Now, John was a prophet. One way to think about John is he was the last pre-Jesus prophet. He was a prophet. But the prophet is a very specific title of another person, an end-time person that the Jewish people were waiting for to come. We learn about this prophet in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses predicted that a prophet would come. Let's read that so you can understand where it comes from. This is Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 20. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses talking. The greatest of prophets to the Jewish people. One just like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb. On the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord your God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command you. Okay. So there's the prophecy about the prophet, this Moses-like figure who would come and do Moses-like things. Okay, so here we have John the baptizer out in the wilderness. Where did Moses do most of his good work? In the wilderness telling people how they should live. That's what John the baptizer was doing, telling them they needed to turn away and move towards righteousness. Who did that? Moses. So you can see people were probably talking. Is this the prophet that Moses talked about? Is he finally here? I mean, John was making some real waves. And John says, no, I'm not the prophet. Well, then who are you, they say? Who are you? Before we get into what he says in the affirmative, I do want to jump down to one other what he is not statement to show you the depths to which John is trying to bring himself low in preparation for the coming of the exalted one. Okay, so jump down with me to verse 26 and 27. After he says that he's the voice of one coming in the wilderness, I'll tell you about that in just a second, he goes on to say, I baptize with water, John answered them, Someone stands among you, but you do not know him. 
He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. I'm not worthy. So you see the same thing. I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm not even worthy to untie the coming one's sandal. What's John getting at? It's, it's, it's sort of obvious, but to the people reading this, it would have been even more obvious that John is putting himself in a completely other category. If you were a teacher, you had disciples or students, and a student was meant to do everything that a slave would do. So they would, they, would help and they would help out their teacher in every possible way, but the one thing they weren't to do because it was so below them as a student was to untie the sandal of their teacher, okay? Not, not, not because the teacher was too great, but because they're, still, they're not slaves, they're students. A slave, on the other hand, would do that. So, you, you following me? So John's saying, I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy to untie the coming one's sandal. I'm below a slave. Like, the one coming is the teacher. I'm not even like a student. I'm not even like a slave. I'm below that. I can't even untie his sandal. That's how low I am compared to the one coming. So you see what's going on? John the baptizer and John the gospel writer are trying to make it very clear that although John the Baptist is the greatest normal human born unto a woman up to this point in history, Jesus says, compared to the one coming, which we come to know as Jesus, he's in a totally other category. It's, you can't even really compare them. It's not like 1A and 1B. It's not even like 1 and 2. It's like, it's like the sun is to a candle. It's like the sun is to a candle. That's what's going on here. John wants, every, both Johns want everyone to know how different the coming one is compared to a mere prophet even the last great prophet, okay? So who is he? Let's jump back up here to verse 23. John tells them who he is. He says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, if you're looking at it in in, uh, your Bible, I'm not sure what it looks like in your journal, but it's bolded if you're using one of the pew Bibles, because it's actually a quote from the Old Testament. So, Urson, throw up Isaiah 43. So this is from the prophet Isaiah, again, hundreds of years before this moment. And John is quoting Isaiah 43 about himself. So don't you worry about John. He's not this and not that, but he's got no problem quoting Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets, and says, I fulfill that part of it all. This is what he's fulfilling. A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight highway for our God in the desert. So John, when he's er, quoting this, says make straight the way of the Lord. The original text is make straight the highway. Basically, pave the road so that people might get to where God wants to take them. And John says, I fulfill that. So he knows what he's not, but he does know who he is. He said, God told me to fulfill this prophecy and prepare 
the way of the Lord. So John doesn't have a confidence issue. That's not what's going on here. He's got no problem fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He just knows he's not the Messiah. He's not anyone's savior. He can't take away anyone's sin, but he can prepare the way for the one who does. So in this sense, John is a herald of a new exodus, announcing that God is about to redeem his people from captivity as he did in the days of Moses. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the coming one. Make paths straight. Pave the highway. Make it as easy as possible for people to experience the revelation when the one comes. And of course we know and we'll read about that revelation is of Jesus. Clear the way. Clear the obstacles. Answer objections. Clear distractions. So that people might experience when the one is revealed, they might know it is the one. John says, that's what God told me to do, and that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing out here in the desert. That's what I'm doing baptizing people. That's what I'm doing in my teaching about who I am and who I'm not. I'm preparing the world for the revelation of the true Messiah. I'm not he, but he is coming. You've got to read this as narrative. John has not yet seen that this person is his cousin, Jesus. He just knows that God said, prepare the way, my one is coming. And again, we'll look at when the one comes next week. So, if John is preparing the people of his day for the revelation of the Messiah, for the revelation of Jesus, for the revelation, as we said, of God in the flesh, as a revelation of true life, as a revelation of true light, What can we learn from him as we hope to prepare ourselves or prepare those we love for a revelation of the same thing? i got three big ideas. Three big ideas. How does one prepare himself or herself for a revelation? Number one. Number one. Confess your knots. Drop the, drop the K. N-O-T-S. Confess your knots. You need to realize, just like John, who you are not. You need to realize what your religion is not. Your religion cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. You cannot save yourself. You need to realize and confess What your politics are not. Your politics, your favorite politician, will not save you, cannot save you. You must realize and confess what your philosophy is not, what your career is not, what your spouse is not. Your spouse makes for a terrible God. It's funny, but it's true. 
I think the reason why so many marriages fall apart is because they don't look to Jesus to be their God, and they make their spouse their God. And guess what? Your spouse will always let you down. They will always fall short. And for those who have children, the same is true. You need to confess what your children are not. They cannot save you. They cannot be your only ultimate purpose in life. They cannot give you the meaning your soul desires. You will always be left starving and hungry for more if you try to make your kids your salvation. These are all good things. But they're not your Messiah. Just like John was a great prophet, but he was not anyone's savior. So the first thing you need to do is confess your knots. And confess means so much more than just say. Because you might be saying, ah, I know that, Dave, I know that, Dave. Do you know it? You need to confess the deep parts of your heart that truly believe those things can be your Messiah, can be your Savior, can bring you to ultimate life and eternal life. You need to deeply confess to God that you've thought more of those things than you have of him. That's the first step to preparing for a revelation of the true Messiah. Just be honest. Deeply honest about what things are not. And again, that's not salvation. That's preparing yourself for the revelation of the Savior. So that's step one. Step number two. Read with me again verse 24-25. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. These are the religious officials. And so they asked him, because the Pharisees are always really concerned about right and wrong and doing the, following the law perfectly. So they asked him, kind of on behalf of the Pharisees, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah, you aren't Elijah, and you aren't the prophet? So why are you out here doing these renewal cleansings, acting as if you're a Levite or a priest when you're not a Levite or a priest? Although John's dad was a priest and a Levite, but he wasn't sanctioned by the temple to do these things. So how can you be telling people that you're giving them some sense of cleansing from their sin? How can you do that? Of course the Pharisees would want to know this. And John says, I baptize with water. And later he'll talk about, if you jump down with me to verse 33, he says, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John is very sure of what he is doing and what he's not doing. He says, there's one coming that baptizes in a totally different way than me. And the other Gospels put those two statements more closely together. But John says, I am doing one thing, even though I'm not doing the ultimate thing. And so what is the one thing that his baptism is doing? It is preparing people to meet their Savior. So what can we take from that? 
John didn't think he was saving people from their sins. That's important. John didn't think he was ultimately changing their eternal destiny. John didn't think that he was healing them of their disease and sickness and bad habits. But he was helping them participate in this preparatory ritual cleansing. And I think we can do the same thing as we prepare to have a revelation of our Messiah, of the true Jesus. And I got an A, B, and C here. A, when you would go to John's baptism, inevitably what you were doing was admitting what? You're dirty. You're a sinner. You're unrighteous. Therefore, come and get a ritual cleansing, spiritually speaking, from that spiritual dirt. So the first thing we can do is admit that we're sinful. That doesn't cleanse us of our sin. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. But it does prepare us to experience the revelation of the true light. So we admit our dirt. We admit our sinfulness. We admit that we've fallen short. We've messed up. We are not living in the way that we know we should or could. And so we admit that. That's what John's baptism was doing. People were having to come to admit that. And it prepared them for when Jesus came. B. I believe you could think of a baptism like a removing of distraction. There was something by the nature of going out kind of far away into the wilderness, for instance, that was removing some of the distractions that would come up. Okay? So, um, the distractions in our life are as numerous as they were for the people back then. Sometimes I like to take a shower because I'm obviously dirty. Sometimes I smell like moose now. But beyond that, it's a way of helping me refocus. There's almost a spiritual cleansing that I do in the shower where it locks me back in. So you might try this. I mean, very practically speaking, I have very sensitive skin, so I get very itchy. It's hard for me to connect with God if I'm distracted by itching. So taking a shower literally helps me not be distracted by itchy skin. It can clear my sinuses. (laughs) Like there's all these physical things that actually do lead to distractions when I'm trying to connect with God. I think I have this rainfall shower in my shower and, and it's, it's, it's like going under a waterfall. The white noise is almost like resetting my internal nervous system. And honestly, it's a, a place where I begin to pray to God that his mercies might fall on me new every morning. So if you have a hard time maybe connecting with God in a morning prayer or morning Bible study, try, very practically speaking, taking a shower before you try to connect with God. Just sort of like a super practical thing. Just try it and see if anything changes. And I think in a very small sense, that's what I'm talking about in a bigger sense, what John was doing. He was helping prepare people for the ultimate coming of a revelation of God through removing distractions from their life. So that's B. Now C, 
Related to this is this idea of removing or simplifying your life. Simplifying your life. It's related to removing your distractions, but simplifying your life. Trying to remove as much of the addiction, obsession, and reliance that you have on the things of this world. John obviously modeled that for people in his wearing of camel hair clothing, eating honey and locusts, having a very earthy life, you could say. Modeling, being in the desert, saying, listen, we have so much that we don't need, and lots of that stuff is actually addiction, obsession, and reliance. And unless we break that reliance on the things of this earth, it will be very hard to see that which comes from above. So I don't know what that looks like in your life. I don't know if you have a hard time admitting that you're sinful, that you've picked up some dirt along the way. I don't know if you have a hard time removing the distractions in your mind and in your heart. I don't know if you have reliance on earthly things that keeps you from seeing the coming revelation of God in your life. But this is the way we prepare for the coming of Jesus, both then and now. And then finally, the third thing. We must expect to be surprised. Do you expect to be surprised when you open your Bible and you begin to read? Do you expect God to show up and tell you something that you didn't know before? When you come to church on a Sunday, do you expect to encounter and behold the very presence of God in this place? I think sometimes we don't experience it because we don't expect it. And so we come in allowing ourselves to be distracted, allowing ourselves to check the box, and not expecting for God to surprise us. Not expecting in that conversation with a friend for God to show up, either in their life or in your life. We just sort of assume it's going to go as it's always gone. Don't do that. Expect to be surprised. Expect that God might be working in that friend's heart, drawing them to himself. Be ready for it so that you don't miss it. It's so easy to miss the revelation of God. And plenty of people missed the revelation of God. The the most religious people of the day missed the revelation of God in the flesh, the true light, the true life, because they were not expecting to be surprised by how God showed up. The story of the whole Bible is God surprising humanity that he's going to show up in ways they never expected. That's surprise. So why don't we expect to be surprised? Maybe we don't want him to show up. Maybe we like our life the way it is. Maybe we don't want to be challenged and moved. Maybe we like the dirt. Maybe we like the distraction. But if you love those things more than you love the surprise of God coming into your life, you're missing out on the fullness of God's plan for you and for the entire cosmos. Expect to be surprised. Expect for God to reveal himself to you. 
Look for it in all creation, in his word, and through the sending of the Spirit. Because he is here. Will you let him surprise you today? Let's pray.